Hey everybody, it's Ian King, founder of King Sports International, innovator of training methods that have changed the way the world trains. Today we have on our call, uh, great honour, Mr. Basketball, Brian Cool. So Brian, I'm going to bring you onto the call now and if you could just take yourself off mute, Brian, and we can chat. Just waiting for Brian to unmute himself. And as we do that, I just want to give you a little bit of background. Brian's probably not going to um, want to spend a lot of time. Yeah, we've got you, Brian. Brian, uh, your nickname's been Mr. Basketball, and I, and I know you're probably not wanting to spend too much time on the past, but um, in all fairness to our listeners, both those on the call today, and we do have a few, as well as to everybody who listens to this podcast into the future, I think it's important that we give a little bit of an introduction about your journey and, and before we get on to the things that you're really focused on now. I hope that's okay. Yeah, for sure. So, Brian, going back to the very beginning, I understand um, you're you're an Olympian and, you know, basketball in Australia was different back in the 70s. Um, you want to take us back to, to what it was like to, to be growing up in, in, and wanting to fulfil your potential in basketball back in Australia in the 60s and the 70s? Well, Ian, probably I was pretty unique. Um, I never came up through the junior ranks. Um, I didn't start basketball till I was nearly, nearly 21 years of age. I hadn't wow. seen a basketball court. I hadn't seen a basketball. Uh, I didn't know anything about basketball. And um, it was just one of those things that happened in your life. I think a lot of things are meant to be and they happen for a reason. But, um, yeah, so I I used to play a lot of tennis um, back in the early 60s and things like that. And, anyway, uh, two or three of my mates who we used to go around all the satellite tournaments we decided to go to the Wollongabba Police Boys Club to, to do some weights because, you know, I was six seven and pretty skinny in those days. And um, so we went in there to do some weights. And the local the police officer on the front counter kept pestering me about that I was tall, I should play basketball. So um, to silence him, I thought, there's only one way to do this. I'll go out the back and I'll give it a go. There was a soccer team from Oxley here in Brisbane who played basketball in the off-season and... Uh, I went out there and it was a oh, uneven court, about three quarters size, made of concrete, uh, rusty old cyclone fence all around it, and a couple of wooden backboards with a couple of 40 watt globes over it. So I went out there and uh, had a training session and um, gave up basketball, uh, gave up tennis two weeks' time. And then I became a basketball player. So that's how it all happened. So that's that's in in Queensland, but you, you ended up taking your game to Victoria, I believe. Which so you know there was probably something about it, the uneven distribution of opportunity in Australia at that time in basketball that probably the young people these days don't don't understand. Well, you know the thing was, yes, you're correct. I only played here for oh, just under eighteen months. Uh, um, started in C grade. The next season I went to B grade and then the third season I went to A grade and uh, I got recruited to go down to Melbourne. Um, went down there and had a trial period in um, in early 1967 um, in January then and, um, uh, and joined the St Kilda Club down there. So I'd only played basketball for 18 months, got recruited down to Melbourne and um, 
in 69, um, I was chosen for the Australian uh, basketball team. So within three and a half years, I was playing for Australia after starting at an age of nearly 21 years of age. So in basketball in those days, and this was the same in Australian football uh, and the same in, in rugby league, uh, you know, rugby league up until a certain few decades ago was a New South Wales-centric sport. Uh, AFL was a Victorian-centric sport. Is it fair to say that basketball was a fairly Victorian-centric sport back in the 60s and 70s? Very much so, yeah. Victoria, well, in the Olympic team in um, in 68 and uh, and 70 team, uh, years like that, 72, sorry, um, it was predominantly made up of Victorian players, and especially from one club, the Melbourne Tigers, uh, coached by Lindsay Gaze. They had something like 10 of the 12 players you, uh, in the team. So, yeah, so you, you virtually had to go there to get recognised, unless you were extremely outstanding um, then you had really no chance of making the Australian team. So, yeah, you're right. It, it was the hub of basketball. It, uh, it dominated basketball here in Australia and uh, until 1979. And same in many sports. I remember weightlifting, et cetera, you know, boys having to move down to, to Melbourne if they wanted to make it. So the Olympics that you attended, clarify that year. Well, um that was in 1972, and that was at the ill-fated, um, you know, which is really sad event uh, in Munich, um, in Germany. Uh, we, uh, uh, you know, that was when the, um, uh, the, what do you call them, the Palestinian uh, like rebels, they, they captured the, um, uh, some Israeli athletes, which was really, really sad times for us. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, leading up to there and, you know, I went through the process to uh, to get chosen for the team. And, uh, you know, I was, I was very, very uh, proud of that fact. And, uh, you know, representing your country in the Olympics, you know, I think it's the, the pinnacle of any sporting achievement. Um, you know, I've, I've been fortunate and as you know, uh, winning just about everything as a player and a coach. But uh, to play for Australia in the Olympics uh, is number one. And, um, you know, the Australian team did very well that year. And, uh, you know, we finished eighth out of uh, 17, 16 teams, which, and we only missed out by, you know, one point in actually playing off in the top eight. But uh, we had some very, very good performances and uh, the team. You know, had some very, very good players. And, uh, yeah, but just unfortunately, what happened with the, um, you know, the, the terrorists, uh, that, that sort of put a dim uh, atmosphere on it. But we all got together in the main arena, all the athletes, and decided that this wasn't going to stop us. And uh, we played on and uh, everybody sort of bonded together so much, so strongly after that. And during that period, it was it was amazing. It was really, really amazing. Okay, that's a great bit of history. That's why I wanted to draw attention to it because it's not every day you get to talk to an Olympian from the 72 Olympics. And as, as we all know, the 72 Olympics was, it was infamous. I won't say it's famous, but it's definitely infamous, um, you know, for all the wrong reasons. But, you know, it, it is what it is. And that's part of history and you're, you're part of that history. So the other aspect that the, um, the younger generation probably don't appreciate, Brian, is in those days, I mean, I, I know the answer, I'm going to ask it, were you getting paid to play basketball? <laughs> Kingy, I was paying to train for the Australian team, with the Australian team. Um, we were training in Melbourne at Albert Park. Uh, I had to pay, uh, I think it was 40 cents to park in Albert Park. 
um, and then I had to pay uh, 80 cents to train. Um, I received no payment at all, and uh, the Australian team, when we went to those Olympics, uh, we had to. We were sponsored by Adidas, and we had to take all the stripes off of our shoes and our uh, tracksuits that they gave us because otherwise we would have been deemed as professional. So, you know, the Americans wore Adidas or whatever they were sponsored by and so did the Russians. They didn't care. Uh, but our Australian, our uh, Olympic Foundation here, they made sure we didn't. We didn't want to break any rules. So that's how amateur we were. Uh, I never, ever received any payment at all. Um and I actually never received any payment at all for playing basketball, to be honest with you. Um, it's only uh, the coaching side of it that I started to get paid. So what the younger generation probably don't appreciate, and I'm sure the sports historians, uh, those who study sports history do, is that you know, we were both brought up in an era where um, amateurs were the only ones allowed to go to the Olympics, or those perceived to be amateurs. And there was a stigma about getting paid. You know, it, it's a phenomenal concept now, obviously, in today's uh, day and age where Sports are one of the main entertainers for the for the world, and therefore you know, amongst the highest paid uh, entertainers in the world. But you know, we, we both started out in sport in a time where you know money was a dirty word. It was, you know, and like I remember playing in in Melbourne when I played for St Kilda. Our team manager, uh, he once he once took me out to a cow lunch. Uh, at a hotel down there, which are you know, very popular in Melbourne. And uh, to me, like, you know, it was a 5 or $6 cow lunch. That was big money to me to say hey, someone shouted me a lunch. But getting paid, you're right, nobody got paid in those days. Not one single person that I know, especially on the Australian team. You know, uh, other countries and that, yes, players were getting paid. Uh, appearance money, they were getting paid because they were in professional competitions and things like that. But in, in 72, we didn't have a professional competition like the NBL as it is today. So, yeah, no players got paid. And uh, everyone worked. Like, I, I worked a, a 7 o'clock to 5 o'clock job. I was employed um, in that time. Uh, Monday to Friday, and then I worked Saturdays. And I remember I was working for a company called Bow Repair Tire Service, who Sir Frank Bow Repair formed Bow Repair Tire Service. He was a former Olympic swimmer. And um, I went to the company. I needed um, the games were for three weeks. I was owed um, 10 days leave. And I asked the company if I could have um, the rest of the time off on full pay. And uh, they rejected me. They said, oh, if we pay you, we'll have to pay everybody that represents Australia from the company. I was the first guy since 1948 that represented the country. And I got denied being paid my wages. So I had to forego wages. But what I decided to do, I actually uh, um, uh, stopped working for the company. And I started my own tyre business up and my own um, mechanical business because I, I could see... I don't know, I had this uh, uh, future thoughts that uh, by using my name as an Olympian, I could build up a build business of my own. And I couldn't understand why that company wouldn't use me uh, to promote their company as an Olympian. Uh, times have changed. We could talk about that all day long. I remember um, Adair Ferguson, who had a child out of wedlock and lost her sponsorship from Sunny Queen Eggs in the day, you know, so we go on a long time about the changes into sport. So let's talk about your, your transition into the coaching ranks. Like, was it pretty quick? Uh, everything that happened in my life has is, is, is been um, 
I wouldn't say weird, but it's, it's just as if, like I said, it was meant to be. See, Kingy, when I left Brisbane to go to Melbourne, I was told by people up here that I'd never make it as a player down there. I'd be lucky to play second division or third division, things like that. But, you know, within uh, three and a half, four years, I played for Australia. We went on a trip. Uh, we had a guy called David Lindstrom who was coaching St Kilda in those days. We went on a trip to um, to Oregon and Washington, all that west coast there. And uh, anyway, David got offered a job, David Lindstrom, um, at Puget Sound, the university there. So he was coaching us, but he had to had to quit. And we were flying back over the Pacific Ocean, um, coming home, the team, and uh, officials from the club, there was two or three of them on the trip, asked me would I coach the basketball team. And, you know, I'd never even thought of it. I I said, uh, you know, I hadn't didn't have any ideas I didn't have you know my own philosophies I had nothing I hadn't even thought of coaching basketball and uh, that's how it happened and I said oh yeah because I was tied up at that club for 16 years um, in total and it was my life and uh, I'm a pretty loyal person and uh, yeah it, and so I thought oh well here's a chance for me to give something back never got paid for it I was still running my company um, and doing things like that and uh, so yeah that's how it all started it was just how it all started in 1978. Um, you know, I, I took over coaching the club. Um, and, and the year before, in, in, um, in 1977, the club won the Australian Club Championships, the, the Victorian Championships, where you couldn't get any bigger than that. Um, and, uh, you know, and then in 78, I finished uh, second and third in those competitions, and I was deemed a failure because uh, the club was used to winning. But uh, then in 1979, the NBL was formed. And, of course, it's all history how, um, how I won the, the first or the team won the first uh, 1979 NBL title in Melbourne, beating Canberra by one point uh, after being one point down with three seconds to go. So, yeah, and then we won it in 1980. So, you know, the first two years of the NBL, you know, I coached uh, St Kilda Basketball Club in, in that competition. So for those around the world, the NBL is a National Basketball League. It's equivalent of the National Basketball Association or NBA in America. Uh, it's gone through, you know, initially, as you said, from a Victorian competition, which is the same thing that the AFL did, the Australian Football League, from, from the VFL to the AFL. So the basketball did the same thing from a Victorian-centric league through to a national league, and then it's gone through a lot of growth, ups and downs, obviously, over there. But, um, so you coached, uh, obviously, the... The Kill team prior to the NBL and with with the championship success, and then the first two championships with um, St Kilda in the in the new National Basketball League, and then you went on to return to Brisbane. Well, before then, uh, yeah, yeah, I that's that is correct. But you know, I got fired for the first time down there because. Um, uh, in 1983, uh, the club was the first time I think it finished outside the uh, the finals. So um, there was a coup, and uh, as you know, they always blame the coach. Uh, we, we didn't have such a great team, but uh, anyway, that's another story. But so yeah, I was fired, and um, at the end of '83, uh, I was offered uh, Brisbane asked me uh, would uh, I come back here. I was asked by a couple of other clubs, but you know, it was always my aim. I always wanted to come home. Um, to to coach at Brisbane and uh, yeah and and then once more it's it's all history and it was meant to be that I came back and uh, and in in '84 we were runners up um, 
we we lost the grand final to um, to Canberra, um, and then in 1985 we won the NBL championships. We were runners up the next year, and we won it in 1987. So four years in a row we were in the grand final, and and people predicted they said I'd never be able to coach. Uh, same when I went to St Kilda and things like that, um, and when I came back to Brisbane to take over there. Uh, I was I was told by people, oh, you know, you, you'll be happy if you finish in the middle of the pack, you finish sixth or seventh or something like that, and which sort of annoyed me a bit because I don't uh, I don't think like that. I think if you think you're going to finish fifth or sixth or seventh, that's where you'll finish. I believe that we could have won it and we should have won it. Um, it didn't happen, but that's how I am, and uh, I always believe in that fact. I, I, I don't set the bar very low for myself, and uh, you know I'm, I'm an overachiever, and that's probably why I've been so successful. So throughout the A's, you, you, you led Brisbane basketball to be well, one of the most successful franchises in the country, and and the the following the the fan following in Brisbane basketball went on to become arguably you know one of the largest spectator sports in Brisbane that time, you know, everybody wanted to get out there and watch the bullets play. They were household names. So, you know, it was, it was, it was a great era um, that was built up throughout the eighties and flowed into the nineties. Look, they were just fantastic years. And I still have people come up to me today and and saying, Hey, we remember those days. Yeah. And like, when I came back here in uh, the end of 83 um, and took over in 84 coaching, uh, the Bullets used to play over Sunday afternoon at Auckland Stadium, probably get about 150, 200 people there. They paid $2 a head. Uh, there was free parking and all that. Um, we, we had one season there in 1984 at Auckland and I decided then we would go to um, – to Chandler and play. Uh, everybody on the committee uh, was shaken in their boots. Uh, you know, you know, we, we should stay here and consolidate before we go on. So I said, well, what do you want to do? Play in front of, you know, well, we, we got 1,500 people there to one game, but we averaged about 1,100 people to, to uh, Orkinflower, whereas when we went to, to uh, Chandler, we averaged uh, three and a half. We had four and a half thousand there for the grand final in 85, which we won. But, you know, and it's the same thing when people, when I recruited Leroy Loggins, they said, oh, how are you going to pay for him? And I said, Leroy will pay for himself. And, and you know, look, at that's all history. You know, uh, you know this is, you know... Yeah, I sometimes I wonder in how I came up with these thoughts and how I come up with these plans, but I came up with them and and they worked. But I had good, positive people around me. I I don't I can't tolerate negative people around me. You got to be positive thinker and you got to believe in what you what you you can do and what you want to do. And I believed in that. So from Chandler, we only stayed there one year, and I told the committee, "Hey, we're going to Boondle." Well, you can imagine that you know there was only an earthquake here in Brisbane because people were just shaking in their boots, and they said, "Oh, you know, you'll never fill it or anything like that." Well, we averaged um, eleven and a half thousand that first year in uh, nineteen eighty-six, and in eighty-seven, uh, like I said, we had thirteen and a half, nearly fourteen thousand people out there. Had one hundred and thirty-eight private boxes. We started off with four at Chandler, um, and the crowds were huge, absolutely huge. It took you nearly an hour from the change room to the um, to the after-game function at Boondle signing autographs. You, we were household names all around the city. You know, Ronnie the Rat, Leroy Loggins, Larry Senstock, John Dodge, the Chicken Farmer. People like that, you know, Danny Morsu. We we just had a, a fantastic following here in the town, and we changed the landscape 
um, of sport up here, I believe. You know, the, there was no Broncos. So the Broncos evolved out of all of that. Uh, Ron McAuliffe, you know, he always heaping praise on me for what we did and, and how we did it. And he saw basketball as a threat to rugby league. And, and as you know, nine people out of ten were rugby league. That's all they knew about. But we were getting people there and uh, knew nothing about the game, but we educated them about the game. We we had bands and marching girls. We had the mushroom there. You know, we had a full-on night of entertainment for the kids, for the families. We had, you know, and, and then, in, you know, but, you know, they charged them $15 to park there and uh, it was costing you $20, $25 to get in. So you can see what happens when you go to the bigger venues. We were on TV. We had, you know, Channel 7. We're fighting Channel uh, 10 for the the TV rights and things like that. And we had, you know, great big sponsorships, sponsors that had rejected us in the first year when I went up there just laughed at me virtually. And then in the, after uh, 12, 18 months, they were knocking on the door. We didn't have to go to them. They were coming to us because we had established ourselves, not only here in Brisbane, Queensland, but we were the trendsetters all around for the NBL. And, uh, and that's, I believe that's why it is what it is today. Absolutely. Just for the for the for the audience and for the record, Boondall is the was the largest entertainment venue in Brisbane at the time. Where if you had a rock band come in, they'd go there. And the name Leroy Loggins is equivalent to you know the Australian equivalent. He's an African American uh, naturalised into Australia, but his his reputation as a player in Australia is equivalent to the Michael Jordan of America. And you know, Leroy was a special a special player. And you know, we go on forever talking about. You know, it was just an amazing experience to be on the sidelines watching him, um, you know, especially clutch moments and his attitude to, to taking responsibility for for anything that wasn't optimal on the court. So, you know, there's this, this a lot to be learned from, from him as a player. I just wanted to clarify that for our international audience who might not know, you know, what the name Leroy, Leroy Logan stands for. So, Brian, you, you, there was a time in the, in the NBL where you probably uh, led the statistics in terms of, uh, the most number of games coached, the most number of um, games won, et cetera, et cetera, and most number of championships. I mean, over time, obviously, these records are, are, are broken by others, but you'd probably still rank in the top three in every category um, in the NBL coaching stats. Uh, I, to be honest, Dan, I couldn't tell you that. I, I, it's, you know, those, those things are are great and all that. The, the one stat that I do like, and, and nobody will ever take this away from me, is the fact that I'm the first guy, the only guy that's in 1979 that coached an All-Australian team to win the NBL title. Yeah. No imports at all. Canberra had two imports. We had no imports in that team. Nobody will ever, ever achieve that same achievement. Now, to me... That is something I value. Um, I've uh, won more titles, uh, you know, than uh, – well, the, actually, one of my protégés, um, uh, Trevor Gleeson, I think we, who you know, uh, Ian, he was one of my assistants there for a stage there. And uh, Trevor worked for me. Trevor's won now four titles as well with the uh, with the Perth Wildcats, So, which is really super for Trevor to be one of my protégés to go on and do that. And I think that's, a, you know, it's tremendous that he has, has achieved that. Absolutely. So let's just come up for again for the record, the, the import, just to help others. We, from memory, there was a two-import r- r- limit, there was a two-import cap in, in, the, in the NBL throughout 
the NBL in those days? Yeah, you could, you're allowed two imports, but you could have uh, two naturalised imports if, if you wanted to, you know. So once in those days you had to live here or play here or continuous for a certain amount of time um, and, uh, and then you could become a citizen and you could play. But Leroy and Ronnie Radler was our first uh, two Americans there we had uh, in those uh, years from 84 to right up to 90. And, uh, you know, we achieved a heck of a lot. We, we played in five grand finals in, in something like six years, um, which is, you know, was a great achievement, I think, for the, for the city, um, for my coaching staff and for the team and for all the supporters we had here in Brisbane. Yeah, you know, that was something that you know you I'll never ever forget, and uh, it's something I'm pretty proud of, to be honest with you. So in that time working with imports, obviously you know, there was pretty much the one my traffic in the early days where where we would accept the Australians, and and these are these were a collection of players. The imports would be either. You know, young players that you know, might have just made uh, an NBA team but felt that their opportunities were blocked or limited, so they'd come across. Um, I think that would summarise most of them. They were they were they had NBA potential, but for whatever reason, they chose to leave the country. And then at some stage, we also picked up retiring NBA players. Is that a fair summary of of the sort of import yeah, we were getting? Yeah, that's a fair summary. Like Leroy tried out for the um, for the NBA like, and. Yeah, Leroy, you'd imagine, had he stayed around. Yeah, well, Leroy, you know, but in those days, you've got to remember that, you know, the, the NBA, they only take in about 14 or 16 new players every season. So it wasn't easy to get into the NBA. And then the next layer went to Europe where the bigger money was. And then uh, Australia sort of got the, the third bite if you want to put it that way. And, uh, yeah, so there's been some great players out here that have played in the NBA. Um, there's some players here that maybe should have played in the NBA. Uh, you know, and we in Brisbane, you know, like I've been fortunate enough, I, I believe I've had two of the greatest players in the NBL and in Leroy Loggins and a guy that nobody knows too much about, but Rocky Smith. Rocky played for me in 1980 and 81 at St Kilda and averaged 33, 34 points a game. Um, Rock, uh, Rocky was from Oregon, um, and uh, we never had the three-point line in those days. So both of those players tried out for the pros, and as great as they were out here, they just quite weren't good enough or they weren't in the right place at the right time to, to make the NBA. Yeah, that's all it is. And obviously over the last few decades, we've had a reverse trend where we've been putting boys into the NBA. So you've, you've also had a hand in coaching a lot of boys that have ended up... Um, either in the NBA, from the NBL, or, or even just straight through college and, 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 and up through there. So that's been an interesting journey watching that as well. Yeah, well, you know, I was fortunate enough to be the assistant coach of the Australian team in 1988 at Seoul Olympics. And um, that team had players like uh, Andrew Gaze, who went on and played games in the, in the NBA. We had uh, Luke Longley, of course, that played in the NBA. We had Mark Bradkey that played in the NBA. So, you know, and I had, you know, a little bit to do with those guys. They went to the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, where they, you know, Adrian Hurley and his staff really uh, made you know, very, very good players about them, but been involved with them. Um, you know, I've, I've had some players. I've got 
I've got one player now, um, Brock Modem, who's in the Australian squad for the World Championships. Uh, Brock tried out for the NBA. Brock's been playing over in uh, Europe and earning big money over there. But he's in the squad. And I've coached Brock from when he was 10 years old to, to 16, 17 years old. And uh, it was great to see him go on and play for Australia. <clears throat> and there's been a... Yeah, you know, a few others as well. But yeah, it, it does give you uh, you know a lot of pleasure to see um, players you know go on. Um, and at the moment, I think of the Australian squad, there's nine NBA players in that squad out of a squad of um, for uh, 15 or 16 they picked. So it shows you the strength of the Australian team. And Ben Simmons, who's the hottest property in the NBA at the moment, has declared himself available for the World Championships. And you've still got the great Paddy Mills, um, you know, one of the greatest um, Indigenous players that's ever represented the country. Um, yeah, so there's some very, very good players there. And Andrew Bogut, who's in the moment, you know, being the grand the finals for the NBA championships for the Golden State Warriors. So, you know, basketball is very rich here in Australia with who the players that are playing in Europe and the players that are playing in the NBA. So Australian kids here have got a lot to to look up to now, a lot of uh, pathways to what they can achieve. So, yeah, I think that's a very healthy thing. And that's probably why grassroots basketball here in Australia is absolutely thriving. And, um, uh, and, and also you see so many kids wanting to play and, you know, we have a problem with, uh, well, it, it's a good problem to have, but um, there's not enough facilities to, to play the games because, uh, you know, so many kids want to play. And what do you think? What do you think about the opportunities for for the kids in Australia to do? And this is a probably a, a topic moving into the reflections of the now. Uh, are we are we providing the the development for our kids? I mean, we're giving them enough opportunity in Australia because I've got my own thoughts on that. Uh, um, you know, are we doing? And, and not not you and me, but uh, is basketball providing enough opportunity for the development of the player th- in Australia at the moment? Uh, I don't believe so. No, I I would say I think they could do a lot, lot better. Um, they only look at a couple of layers, the, the top, the cream of the crop, um, and then the rest of the, the kids are sort of left to their own fruition, which is fine by me because, you know, that, that's my business now. And, and I do a lot of work with those kids trying to get them up into that uh, – in that high bracket, um, and and that's the fun part about what I do. But I think there could be a lot more development. There should be more spent on development and development of coaches uh, around the country. Um, you know, the Australian team is very strong and under was under 16, 18s, and 20s on the world stage. Uh, but that's fine. But you, you're only looking at um, you know 15 kids. Uh, boys and 15 girls in that bracket. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we've got uh, hundreds of thousands of kids playing basketball. So what's happening to all those other kids? That's my question. But I, I think, yeah, there, there could be a lot better development scheme uh, or session or programs going on. Um, state, I know here in Queensland, that it's not covered very well at all with uh, state coaches in the regions where they used to have you know, uh, that's where AFL and, and Rugby League have just got it over the top of basketball. They've got so many development offices around the state, um, you know, 20 and 30, maybe more. Uh, I know Aussie Rules do a tremendous job. I go up to the Cape and up to Torres Strait and the work they do up there 
and you've got all these um, Indigenous kids that yeah who are born in, into rugby league and now playing Aussie rules and um, you know which is fantastic for these kids and it's a great pathway for them. But you know uh, Torres Strait, for instance, three three basket Indigenous basketballers have come out of there: Danny Morsu, Michael Armat, and um, uh, young um, the young guy I just uh, just mentioned, uh, Paddy Mills. You know, they never go up there. They never go up there and do any work up there. You know, I've been up there three times in the last 18 months and uh, doing sessions and up there. And I saw some other kids there. Actually, I've got a big boy from Yam Island from the Torres Strait, six foot eight. Um, he's only 17. Uh, he's he's in my basketball academy down here. You know, so I'm I'm giving him that privilege uh, and that opportunity to to go on to bigger and better things. I remember the Bulls saying to me back in the early 90s, got any more Luke Longleys? You know, you've got any more seven-footers? They were so happy to receive Luke. But so I, I like the way that the, the Australian pathway in the NBA has improved. But at the same time, I think for whatever reason, we've left the gap there. If a kid isn't instantly in the NBA from Australia, I, I think we lose them a little bit because I think they get a bit disillusioned or just don't see this opportunity in our country. No, and, you know, a lot of kids, they, they got this big dream of going to college basketball and, and I think it's overrated myself, um, you know, but then again, I've said, you know, the opportunities here aren't here for them to improve. So they've got to go over there and that's why, why should the kids have to leave here, go over there to college when a lot of them get disillusioned, a lot of them just become training bait over there and, uh, you know, they come away with no certificate no qualifications and things like that but I see so many kids come back and never complete the, the four years over there so I, I think that you know that that pathway you know we've got a lot of kids playing in Europe you know and, and they're not playing here in the NBL um, I still think the NBL's got to go back to a summer season you know uh, sorry a winter season it's winter yeah. summer now playing the winter season yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that when people that's it's an indoor sport yeah, you don't play cricket in winter. You play cricket in summer because it's an outdoor sport. And that's when people will go. And, you know, yeah. that's what they need to do there. But and, and change it so that those kids playing in Europe then can come back home here and play for three months in the NBL, earn extra money, but and also pick that quality up. See, I don't believe in the three American rule now, import rule in the in the NBA, uh, NBL. I, I think, you know, that's just taken away spots from Australian Players. Australian basketball at the top is very short of point guards at the moment because all the teams are bringing in import guards. So, you know, there's yeah. eight teams in the NBL or nine next year. So, you know, but most of them are taken up. Their main point guard player is an American. So what happens to the Australian kids? Yes. Yeah, well, there's a lot of things I agree with. I, I was disappointed when the NBL changed the the Saints of season played in. And I've also got my reservations about going to college in America. So I've seen what happens physically to all sports in, in the college level. But, you know, without trying to upset the NCAA, um, that's, a, that's a whole whole different problem. Um, I, I wouldn't recommend that them other than obviously they get to get on the court more Breaking and they get up. to play 
drip at a high pretty good. Uh, obviously, you found a niche for yourself. Um, you've, you know, as well as structural coaches and and, and just want to confirm that you can hear me, Brian. Yeah, it's breaking. So we're up waiting for Brian to reconnect. There. Um... Are we there? Yeah, sorry about you that. Hear me now? Um, yeah. Yeah, you've got. Uh-huh. Yeah, got you, Brian. So yep. you've had a chance to mix with a lot of successful people. You, you've had a chance to to mix with a lot of successful basketballers, coaches, uh, and industry leaders in in your in your sponsorship deals, and you're dealing with, um, you know, governments and and other. Uh, you know, politics, etc. You've seen a lot of success. What, what are the what are the some of the things you'd you'd say to a young to to an athlete or a coach who wanted to to, to pursue, uh, wanted to achieve success in their own endeavour? What are some of the common traits that you've seen in players and coaches and successful business people when it comes to the 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 the, the trail of, of hints that they leave? You know, what are some of the commonalities you're seeing? I think yeah, the, the three main ingredients definitely is you got to have passion for it. You got to be prepared to work for it. It's not going to be handed to you. Yeah, uh, you know I've been in a lot of ups and downs in this in this industry as it is. What I've gone through with different people and what they've cost me and everything. But you still have to be passionate about it. And and if you're not prepared to to make sacrifices, and and I get kids coming to me, and you know they all want to play in the NBA. Yeah, we all want to play in the NBA. We all want to go to the Olympics. But what are you prepared to do to go to the Olympics? What what are you prepared to give up? What are you prepared to sacrifice? And if you're not passionate about getting out of bed early, like I, I, I talk to kids, you know, when I, like I said, I never started till I was 21. I worked a job five and a half days a week. It was a physical job. It wasn't a cushy job. I trained every single I, lunchtime. I was passionate about wanting to play for Australia. Nowadays, the kids, I got to say this, and I got no problems. You know, I don't if I get any hate mail or whatever. Kids are so soft today; they want to make it to the top, but there's a very small percentage that want to do that extra yard, want to give up something, you know, or going to a party or or getting off their phone for ten minutes and things like that. It, and it's the same in business. And you know, I've built my business up when I started doing the business I'm doing now. I have had two days off this year, Good Friday and Easter Saturday. Okay, people say I'm crazy, I need to say, but if I don't do it, who's going to do it? And nobody runs your business and nobody can, you know, get you to the top. And I say to kids, you know, you can be anything you want to be. It's up to you. It's your choice. You make the decision. Nobody else can make that decision for you. If you want to train 20 hours a week, you can train 20 hours a week. I, I use the example of um, uh, Kobe Bryant and um, Steph Curry and people like that. Everyone, the kids, they want to copy these kids. But they train for an hour a week in. And you cannot be like those guys by training an hour a week. Those guys train for two, three, four hours a week, take thousands of shots a week. That's why they're great. And it's the same with your business. You've got to put the hours in. You know, you, you've, you've got to do that extra time. Nobody's going to look after your business as good as you do. And and now, you know, I'm, I'm getting inquiries from all around. From I got inquiries from Nauru Island. I get inquiries from Samoa. I had inquiries to go to the Philippines. Yeah, I, I haven't been able to do it all. You know, I, I can do as much as I can. But it's because I'm passionate about what I do 
and I want to do it. And that's the same with your business. If you're not passionate, you don't believe in your business, it won't be successful. And if you're not passionate and want to work hard as a basketball player or a basketball coach, you won't get anywhere. It's not going to come to you. You've got to go out there and make that choice of where you want to be and what are you going to do to get there. That's the big thing. It's the up to the individual. And these days, you know, I have too many kids. They're so soft, you know, because that's the society we live in now. You know, I get kids that have got little bruises and things like that so they can't train for two weeks and what have you. You know, gee, you know, I, the first Australian team I tried out for in 19... Um, in 1970, uh, in 1970, there you go, I'm going back 49 years. You know, I did an ankle three days before the, the tryouts. I went and got a cortisone injection in my ankle so I could train. I wanted to make that team. But now kids are out for three or four weeks if they twist an ankle. Players are out for three or four weeks. Okay, we've got all this duty of care and all that, but we've developed a soft society as well. And that's why I think a lot of, you know, and athletes, and the problem is the professional athletes, they'll keep playing. They'll, they won't play because they're still getting paid. So, you know, the slightest injury they've got, they'll get treatment for it and uh, they still back and still get their paycheck. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I hope that's pointed out to you, but I am very passionate about, like this morning I was up at six o'clock. I've coached a young boy. Uh, 12-year-old lad, he comes to me every week. He's improved out of sight. Now I'm driving up to Maryborough, which is three hours away, to do two-day clinics up there just to help these country kids and give them an opportunity, but also to give them my experience and how I got to the top, you know, in, in working and running my own businesses and things like that. And uh, so, and then I've given them pathways. I have an Indigenous Academy. I have a Brian Curl Basketball Academy, which is a full 12 month academy. You know, and you know, I've got 18 kids. I started last year with four. So we're up to 18 kids, but it's been hard work and I'm passionate about making it work and getting more kids there, better um, professional help for these players and things like that, you know, and it's working. You know, we're creating some very good players. And that's why the message is important because people can forget the, the athlete's name, they can forget the coach's name, but the keys to success, the keys to success in sport, business and life, they don't change. And you don't, you, you don't have to wait too long in life to work that out. You can work that out. And you worked it out back there by 1970, in the 60s. And that message is, it remains unchanged today. So it, it's, uh, it's been a great opportunity. I've certainly enjoyed um, sharing the journey with you on, on the basketball court. A lot of good memories um, being there with you and uh, also in building your new business. So, you know, we've, we've had a, quite a few chats uh, about direction and, and, and things like that. And, and as you said, people probably don't appreciate, like, you know, your age has got a seven in front of it. And, and I'm personally in awe of the amount of uh, hours you put in and, and the time you spend on a basketball court and, and, you know, without speaking out of school, you recently had a knee replacement, which, you know, didn't make it easy to be on your feet, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, the, the work ethic and the drive um, and, and the belief that, you know, you get you out of bed every morning. It's, you know, it's one thing to be, as you, as you know, it's one thing to be the, the most, the highest profile basketball coach in Australia you know, 30, 40 years ago, but what, do you, what have you done today? To, 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 you, you're still doing great things today to remain 
uh, a, a, a contributor in in the sport, which is really rare. I don't I don't know too many people who've played the game uh, and and coached the game at, at the level you have, and are still out there on you know on the field giving back every day. I mean, there's there's a few in every sport, and you're certainly you know one of those rare commodities uh, in, in 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 basketball. So let's talk about your your coach and direction at the moment. We know there's holes in Australian basketball. And we know there's holes in opportunities for, for kids in post-high school. There's also, you know, a lot of opportunities in our Indigenous um, population that, as far as uh, their potential contribution to sport. So I know you're filling a lot of those and uh, I know you're excited about that. So we appreciate learning a little bit more about that, uh, about how your business is going at the moment. Well, Ian, you know, like I said, I've had two days off this year. And, you know, like, okay, you said there's seven. I'm 73, going on 74 in August. Okay, I've been in this game for 55 years. I still go to coaching courses. If an American coach comes out here, I go to it. But I see a lot of other Australians. The association that I do a lot of work for down there, they had a coaching course late last year. Okay, and they had five really good coaches there talking. Eight coaches turned up. Eight coaches out of the association, and they got about 60. I was one of them. And the director of coaches says, Curly, what are you doing here? I said, mate, I don't, you never stop learning. If you think you know everything and, and you stop wanting to learn, you might as well quit. Get out of it because you can never stop learning enough. And so that's, that's one of my things about life. You, you don't stop learning and you don't stop practicing. But now, you know, I, I do individual sessions, Sunday mornings. I put through 30 to 40 kids from 7 o'clock until 11 o'clock in private coaching lessons, group lessons. Saturday morning we do the same. We've got the academy going. I do a couple of schools. Um, I do uh, things for kids that are disadvantaged. Um, I do um, work for uh, youth justice. Anybody that asks me, you know, I, I try to accommodate them. It's getting to the stage where, you know, I can't cover everything. And I'm a firm believer if I can't do it 100%, then, it, you know, I shouldn't do it. But I hate letting people down. And, you know, I, I coach young kids from six years old still to 20 years old. And, and you know, those kids, you know, just by a thank you from those kids keeps you going. You know, and, and the kids I've got... And, and one of the, the people ask me what's changed in the landscape of basketball and coaching. You know, 20, 30, 40 years ago when I would coach, and I've got to be careful how I phrase this, but you know what? 95% of the kids were Australian kids. Now it is so multicultural. You know, I'm looking after migrant kids coming now from war-torn countries. I've got a young Ugandan girl from Burundi, but she's escaped to Uganda, her and her family. She, basketball has saved her out here. You know, but giving back those sort of things, and I do give back as well as I, you know, get paid for a lot of things that I do. But giving back to those people and making their life uh, better and I got three Syrian boys that were practicing basketball in Syria three months ago and a hundred yards up the road where they were on the street, a, a bomb went off and they got hit by a little bit of shrapnel. Nothing serious, but you know, that happened. Can you imagine that happened here in Australia? We can't. And I talk to these kids, the kids for today. I'm saying, guys, you are so privileged to have a great country like this. And you got, you're so privileged to have so much sport 
And look, as much as I love basketball, I just want to see all kids playing sport. It's not meant for all kids. Some are musicians, some are painters, some are singers and, and things like that. And I think that's marvellous as well. You know, and that's what we need to do. We need to keep kids busy. You know, our suicide rate is getting bigger and bigger every year. And young kids, because they're bored, they, they're uh, out there and don't know where to go. And that's where my academy is, uh, is filling a void there as well. You know, we've saved a lot of young people with anxiety and depression and, and making them into decent basketballers. So, you know, that's the satisfying thing about my job, um, you know, uh, and people coming to me like that, looking for help, looking for support. And, uh, and we, we give them that. And, and my biggest issue is finding coaches that have got the same passion as I have. You know, they, they need to be passionate, honest with themselves, honest with me and, and loyal. That's the big key things. And, and you know, I, I, I do need more coaches at the moment because Brian Curl can't do it all. Brian Curl love to. And if Brian Curl doesn't turn up to a session, he's got another session, I feel guilty about that. And, and people say to me, oh, you shouldn't worry about it. Yeah, but that's all right for people to say. They don't know Brian Curl. And that's how Brian Curl is. That's how he'll always be. Nothing will change that. But, you know, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, last week I was in Mount Isa and Cloncurry and the people there that um, don't know where that is. It's not the greatest. It's not Las Vegas. There's not too many lights up there. And, and I had two – I did in four days nearly 300 kids. Um, 70% of them were Indigenous kids. Oh, the greatest time of my life. And those kids were so appreciative that somebody would go up to a remote part of Queensland and do this for them. That's, that's what gives me a lot of satisfaction. And, and out of that, you never know. One of those kids, you know, I used to go up to these places and say, how hey, I'm going to change everybody's life. And now if I get one or two or three of those kids and I make a difference to their life, then we've been successful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's the, one of the great honours of being associated with you, Brian, is because there aren't too many people who, as I said, continue, you know, 50-something years later, they're giving back and, you know, but, I say to people, sport's been good to me, and, and, and that's why I do a lot of uh, similar in that giving back, and we do different sports. We do a lot of, um, of a similar thing, and, and, and the same reason, you know, you, you appreciate what basketball's done for you, and it's given you so much that there's enough for you to give back. Yep. It does. I've come and heard this live because not every day you get exposed to um, to someone whose who's, whose life has been a contribution in the same way Brian says to to, to a sport, both its success as well as the grassroots level. So I'm going to take Nick off. Nick, uh, Nick is uh, a Queenslander. He's got a question for you, Brian. If I can, I've un- unmuted Nick. Nick, you just need to unmute yourself. That's it. You're live, Nick. Hi there, Brian. Um, thanks for your Hi, contribution, contribution and to obviously Australian sport um, and your talk this morning. Um, we've got a couple couple questions. You've kind of partially um, answered one of them um, just in the past couple of minutes, actually. But with obviously the sport having become professional and obviously in the professional era that it now is in, do you find like the kids nowadays comparative to the kids um, during, you know, go back 20, 30 years, um, and the difference in sort of the the skill set, or do you find that because obviously now technology being so present and kids being, I guess, not as exposed to you know um, 
necessarily the hand-eye coordination because there's other alternatives. You know, kids used to get out more outdoors more. So have you found it sort of has, uh, it's not necessarily rare to come across that sort of talent um, as perhaps, you know, 20, 30 years ago? Or do you find that because the prof- like the professionalism is now relevant, do you think that it's, you know, more prevalent to see, sort of see kids that, you know, sort of strive to, you know, um, go to that next level? Or do you find that because of the past they had, you know, just they're outdoors more and had exposure to more sports and stuff like that, that the kids were more developed at a younger age? Or I don't know, what's sort of your take on, on that? Um, yeah, that's that's an interesting one. Uh, you know, with, with the kids these days, yeah, I, I was doing a talk the other, other week and um, – uh, I was telling people that when I started playing basketball and coaching basketball, I didn't have YouTube. I didn't have uh, the NBA live on TV. I didn't have all the uh, social media that you could access coaching information. Uh, the only way we could get it is if we went for a trip to America, we'd, we'd go to all the bookshops at the universities and grab every basketball book that we could. Um, nowadays, kids have got so much access to this professionalism, uh, like footwork, you know, uh, weight training, it's it's all on YouTube now and all these fancy websites and what have you, and you can subscribe to them and things like that. So the kids can virtually sit at home, find out all this information as long as they're prepared to do it. I think the best advantage was for us, though, we had to get out and do it, um, and that made it more challenging as far as I was concerned. You know, it's great now, like whenever I get, tired of some of the things I'm doing I just go onto YouTube and I said yeah I'll do this 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 and this let's pick out some new things so yeah I think that that's a key factor and uh, the kids today and and unfortunately because they've got access to all the things doesn't mean to say they're going to be better players because I think they take a lot of it for granted um, I, I remember once talking to an American coach and, you know, like American kids come out here and they say, oh, you know, I'm injured. Uh, you know, what do I do? And they say, well, you go and see the physio and it'll cost you $40 or $60. And they said, what? Because when kids, kids go to college, you know, they got physios, they got masseuses, they got dentists, they got uh, every single person. And what this coach said to me, and he was coaching them, he said, Curly, if we had a gynecologist, the, the players would be visiting that gynecologist as well, you know, because they just use up these things because they're there. They don't really need it. They're not really injured. But, you know, it's a really good analogy how he explained it. But whereas out here, you know, we, we didn't have that. We always taped ourselves up. And, uh, and now kids are getting starting to get taped by, by professional people. So, yeah, it, it, you know, it's uh, that's why I think it's created that um, – that, uh, you know, that, that soft attitude in our society now. And it's not just basketball, it's most sports. I don't know if that answers yeah, your question. Yeah, no, no, I think that that's it's good, Brian. I think, um, I think that hits the nail on the head there with Nick. I'm just going to check with Nick. Uh, Nick, was there a second part or were you good? No, you've hit the nail on the head there, Brian. Thanks, thanks for that. Excellent. So we've got some more questions. So I'm going to go to Tong. So Brian, you might, uh, we'll just let everyone know, 
Brian Brian is an honorary KSI coach. He's been he's been invited into the KSI coaching group Facebook page. He's been there for you know probably a year or two now. Um, so we we basically treat Brian as an honorary KSI coach uh, due to he's obviously uh, you know our respect for what he's doing in sport. And so he, he's already he's already familiar with some of our coaches. And so Tong uh, from Los Angeles, he's got a question for you, Brian. Hi, Brian. Tong. Thank How you. are you? I'm good. Thank you for uh, showing up on this call. It's really good to hear your experiences. Um, it sounds like you've encountered a lot of people who doubted your talent and dedication and passion. How did you overcome that throughout the years? And what advice would you give to players and coaches? in their career about dedication i'm oh, just basically it's basically saying brian that you, when you, you people doubting you and i was going to answer for him i say because brian's a stubborn bastard a bit like myself but i shouldn't answer brian so brian she's saying um you know if people doubt you know you say i'm going, I'm going to go to brisbane and we're going to do well, no, you're not Brian. You're going to come mid rank. I'm going to go to Chandler, and it's going to work. No, you're not. I'm going to go to Boonle, it's going to work. So she's she's just wanting to clarify, you know, some of the some of the things in your mind that make, make your moves against negativity. Well, well, Tong, if I had to listen to people that I wouldn't be able to play basketball in Melbourne and that I wouldn't be able to coach, I wouldn't be talking on this uh, webinar today. Correct. For sure. Because I'd be, no, I'd be nobody. And this is what I, and when I talk to young kids and young people, I say to them, you can be anything that you want to be. There's only one person that can stop you and that's you. And, and like I have people still saying, oh, you think that'll work? I said, look, you know, and, and I have a philosophy too, for every problem there's a solution. You know, if you want to make it a problem, it'll be a problem. You'll never fix it. But if you want to fix it, you can fix that problem. And I think that that's uh, a one way. I listen to people. I'm respectful to them, but I don't let them stop me. You know, like we've got a project on at the moment. Uh, we've had an inquiry to, for Chinese students to come over here and do basketball in English. We're trying to set that up. Uh, and we've got another couple of big projects that we're setting up. A lot of people, when I mention it to them, raise their eyebrows. That's fine. You know, you're either with me or you're not with me. And uh, if you want to come along for the ride, then you'll enjoy the success that I have at the end of it. And there's not many things that uh, have, have, haven't have ended in success, uh, except one or two, which Kingy knows about. But, you know, uh, we have a – well, you know the old saying, it's not how many times you get knocked down, it's how many times you get up. That counts. And and I just keep getting up again and uh, and soldiering on. And, and, you know, and that's the great fun part of it. But, yeah, look uh, – Nobody can decide what you want to be, you know, and, and that's the same as what you're doing with, um, you know, with your bodybuilding and things like that. It's the same what Kingy's doing. It's the same with any athlete that that's out there. You know, it, it's the ones that uh, self-doubt themselves that never go on. So you've got to believe in yourself. You must have that self-belief. I think I've got to believe it was a catchphrase for the 1992 season or something like that. Brian, I've heard that before. Yep. Yep. Got to have that belief, mate. Even now, I so, still do it. Great question, Tom. And um, I encourage you to re-listen to this and, and to... 
breaking yeah, up again. Brian Cook, trademark saying, and uh, Tong, I appreciate the question, and any, anybody anybody achieving things that Brian has done over the years, uh, you know, you've got to be willing to work against the, the doubters, uh, the negativity, and then sometimes even the haters, because you determine your future. Other people don't determine your future, and you've got to believe in yourself enough to, to create it as Brian does, and continues to, to shape the history of basketball in Australia and influence uh, it throughout the world. So we're going to talk, if you've wrapped, I'll just check if you've wrapped and then we'll go to Ron. So I'm going to assume that Tong had finished there and let's go Ron. Uh, Ron White, uh, physical coach out of Indonesia, but a uh, former Scotsman. So don't get confused by the accent. Ron, if you could unmute yourself, you have the floor. So waiting for Ron to sort his technology out. So Ron, you're still on self-mute. And there you go, Ron. Yep. You're live. Can you hear me? Yeah. We can yeah, now. Okay. Yeah. So whether we can understand you or not, not we can hear you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Brian, thanks for the uh, – it's probably one of the, the best uh, podcasts I've had um, in a long time. Um, great um, achievements, what you're doing down there and contributions you're giving to the sport and especially at your young age of 37. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, I wish. You Scotsman always get things uh, back to front. Yeah, I'm a bit dyslexic. Um, <laughs> so anyway... The, the question the question I have, I mean, growing up and um, being involved in sport and uh, taking part in a lot of sport myself, um, I, I kind of get the feeling nowadays that as you as you go in and you, you touch the, the thing about the kids, they've got no like sort of ethics for hard work and how it's going to get to there. And they see all these nice players playing in the, in the top leagues, earning big bucks and like, Going back in the day, and and you you really you put it there. You had to take everything out of your own pocket. And um, so, do you think that this big buck thing is has not only driven a a rod down in between teams and players because one player will get paid more than the next? There's a lot of animosity in the in the ranks of the teams. And you think that's reflecting also in the kids as well because it's giving them a lot of false hope and they don't realise the hard work they have to put in. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, basketball, like, it's it's weird. And the NBA, it's the only business that I know where the employees get paid more than the boss, and that's the coach. And the players get paid more money than the coaches. So, and that's probably why the coaches always get fired first. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, – and if kids see that um, – and, you know, there's – in junior sport here in Australia, and I think it's all around the world, the politics in it, and you have those – see, the biggest problem we have with junior sport here in Australia is the parents. Now, okay, we can't do without the parents. We need them to drive them to the practice and to the games and things like that. But parents are – getting worse here in Australia with how they're trying to influence their selection of their child. Um, coach is not playing them enough. Uh, Billy's not passing to my my Bobby and things like that, you know, making excuses for their kids all the time. And, 
you know, I say to kids, you get out there and you train hard and you make it difficult for the coach not to play you. And when you're on the court in a game, you play hard so that he can't substitute you. But you all look for excuses, you know, why you've been taken off. Make, it, make reasons why he can't talk, take you off. And that's, you know, a lot of them aren't prepared to do that. And uh, like they say, the, the parents are making the excuses for them. So that's causing problems within the teams. And, and also in, in the NBL here now, because of the disparity of the, the money that some players are getting, you know, the guy that's getting 200000 uh, he's not happy because his mate's getting 300000 And, uh, you know, I like the way the American system is where the salaries are uh, transparent, whereas they're not here. But, you know, whispers and things like that, players find out how much they're getting and uh, all that. And, you know, if you've got a player, and especially like soccer, for instance, in the in the English Major League, or in the English uh, Premier League, how, like, if you've got someone on there earning 50, 60, 70 million dollars, then the rest of the team's saying, well, he's getting all that money. Why isn't he working harder than we are? You know, he's the one that should be winning the games for us. And, and that's human nature. People are like that. And that's, that's what I think, that's what I think can destroy teams for sure. And uh, that's a, a reality that's probably not going to go away. And Brian, yeah, and I, I think, think you've... Uh, tend to the job of the coach to to create the culture and to control that that and it's not been it's not been any easier with the rise of player managers you know player managers in Australia is you know, in our time gone from being non-existent to, to almost dictating the game but at the end of the day uh, you just got to be strong as a coach and um, and hopefully you've got administrators that support you. That's right, exactly. And, and you know, like the managers, they all won't get their 10% and uh, they'd rather get 10% of a 200000 than a 100000 So they'll keep pushing the price up and pushing the price up. And that's what destroyed a lot of clubs here in um, in Australia anyway. And a lot of us, the managers blame. And, and, and they'll also direct the player to play overseas um, if it's a higher income because it's better for them uh, under the guise it's better for the player. So... You know, I've got a lot of questions uh, for the players before they listen to their manager. Uh, but that's a, you know, that's a discussion for another day. But you know, that's, a, yeah. that's an evil we've seen rise. Um, I'm sure you preferred the days when you had a quick discussion with a player and you might have shaken your hand and that was about it. Well, that's how I got Leroy Loggins the first year, three years. I just said, Lee, what do you want? And uh, we just... Uh, first deal was done over the phone actually and it wasn't until they bought contracts in and uh in the uh middle 80s that uh you know things changed when um, you know you had to have a player contracted yeah and again the name leaping comes up and people who, who are not familiar with the history of australian basketball do some research i've, I've been involved with a lot of athletes a lot of sports but there aren't too many that that I think of more than Leroy in terms of, you know, the uniqueness of a player that he was. And uh, you know, Brian obviously brought him to the game in Australia and gave him the opportunity to flourish in, in our market, whereas he might, he, he's, he might not have made it in the NBA for whatever reason. There's more about timing than anything else, but just a phenomenal career um, worthy of you becoming familiar with if you want to study role models in athletes. Okay, so we've had some um, great chat and I appreciate the 
other coaches have been on the call. We've had a number of our KSI coaches on the call and um, they're very appreciative of, of, of Brian's involvement and and I hopefully one day, you know, Brian get along to a KSI event somewhere along the way and um, get some in-person exposure to them. But uh, basketball is one of the many sports that our KSI coaches have a, a strong love for. We've got um, coaches who are actively involved in uh, basketball in different countries around the world and uh, it, it is one of the greatest games on the planet. Uh, it's, it's one of those games that you can play pick-up anywhere. Uh, a bit like soccer, really, and that's why it is uh, such a great game. But I don't need to tell Brian it's a great game because it's been his life. So, Brian, I know you've got heaps to get done. Um, you, you know, really appreciate you taking the time in, in that busy schedule, as um, Ronald said at the youthful age of 37, uh, to, to, to share with us. And you know, I don't know whether you've got any final... Final comment you want to share, Brian? Uh, this 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 will be a recording that will be up on our website for, for a long, long time, and people will be able to benefit from many years to come. Which is, you know, we like to do things that that stand the test of time, and, and chatting with you has been part of it. So, any passing words of wisdom for us, Brian, or any any passing comment? Well, can you just elaborate on something that I said earlier? I think that you know, um, the coaches that are involved here in KSI, you've got a marvelous opportunity. Uh, I wished I had have had, <clears throat> although I had Kingy's knowledge uh, when I was at the boards, but coaches these days, uh, in the early days, never had what, what you guys are uh, experiencing now and what you guys are achieving through this program. And I think you're very, very fortunate. And um, that can only develop, you know, more coaches and better coaches uh, and, and helping them with knowledge and things like that. So, yeah, it, and I think it's great that uh, Kingy, you're doing a program and I'm not, you know, blowing your whistle or anything like that. I'm being genuine because I've known you too long. I know how professional you are and, and, and how you work. But, you know, I, but, you know, you can't have regrets about what I didn't have and, and all that. It's now that you worry about. So that's why I, I still want to learn and I read as much. I'm not a great reader of books, but I like to look at things and see what other people are doing and, and different things. And, you know, I, I got a lot of my knowledge, not just from basketball coaches. I, I spoke to a lot of other different sports coaches. And uh, that's where I think a lot of coaches, uh, they get mixed up and a little bit confused. That They think, oh, you know, I'm a cricket coach or I'm a soccer coach. I'll only talk to soccer coaches. You know, there's get out of the, you know, think outside of the square, get some different uh, views about things, and you'll find um, that uh, it can, it's very beneficial. And um, we proved that years ago when we had probably six or eight of the top coaches here in Brisbane. We all sat around, had a dinner once a month, and it was the best coaching course we ever did. The best coaching course we ever did. And we learned so much. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it reminded me of a funny moment um, when you say that intro approach by coaches to sport. I was on the team bus in one particular sport, and I won't say which sport, but, you know, many of our conversations occur on the team bus. And the coach said me, and this is not basketball, you know, trying to um, – you know, he stereotyped me as a, as a physical coach for basketball, believe it or not, and he was trying to shut that down. But anyway, so, yeah, it's um, the, the benefit they have with our program is we, we do bring – uh, the cultural experience from so many different sports, as you know, Brian, been involved with over 30 different, 30 different sports at the elite level. And, and I, I know the culture of sport, uh, both across sports as well as across countries. And you can take take some great things out of out of all those sports and uh, integrate it into your own 
and I know you've always been open to that. Uh, you know, in fact, when I started with you back in the late 80s there, uh, mid to late 80s, um, you know, you were you were very open considering the success you achieved to to having someone inverted commas outside basketball because I didn't play basketball at an elite level. Um, and so you, you were a great example of a coach willing to say, okay, you know, I respect what you've got to say and how, you know, how, how do you want to do this? So you've been a great example for that and we we've appreciate your contribution and we'll continue to support you as we have. Um, on and off the court and look forward to your continued involvement with KSI. I know many of our coaches now have got a greater understanding of who Brian Curl is and they'll they'll make more of an effort to, to learn from, from you and learn from basketball uh, and learn from the history, the history of people who, who are icons in their sport. Uh, I've had the honour in Australia of being involved with so many of them and uh, as Australian sport, it's more appreciated around. We were once that little nation that no one really knew about and, you know, we almost felt guilty about turning up at the Olympics. In fact, one of the greatest challenges I had with Australian athletes was that once they'd made the Olympics, they just thought their job was done. And now we're considered a, a genuine force to be reckoned with in world sport, and that's because we do sport well. And, Brian, you've been a big part of that and contributing to, to so many basketballers' uh, careers during the last five decades. So we appreciate in in the wrap and... Uh, Stay with our group, Brian. We appreciate you being involved. And many of the coaches probably didn't know you're an honouring member of our, our Facebook group, but now they do. And, uh, you know, we look forward to further involvement from KSI and KSI coaches with you. And, uh, well, moving forward, it's a beautiful sport and you've made a magnificent contribution. Thanks, Dan. So we'll Thanks, talk uh, after the call, Brian, but appreciate in, in conclusion here. I appreciate your time today. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Keep believing. All right. Thanks, everyone. Okay.